Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Well, moving to a new country can be challenging enough without also having to navigate the maze of Australia's immigration system and its obligatory reams of paperwork. So what rights do temporary visa holders have and what can lawyers do to help pave a smoother road to residency? Well, the answer to both is more than you might think and I am joined by immigration law specialist Daniel Estrin in Perth. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. Good to talk immigration. I'm a big immigration nerd, so I'm very excited. (laughs) Well, I will be picking your brain very closely over the next half an hour. I'll start you off with an easy one just to make sure you've done your homework. How many types of visas are there? (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't tell you that because it changes on an almost daily basis. But um, I would say at any given time, you're probably looking at uh, at around about 100 different types of visas, which are sometimes classed into classes and subclasses. And sometimes one subclass could have different streams, um, which makes it even more confusing because if you look at a visa number, you might not know whether that person is a super yacht crew member or a person who's here for entertainment or a sports person. So um, it is a very confusing system to start to start the conversation. To start it off, what are some of the most common reasons that people want to move to Australia? Australia is a very, very popular destination country. It is an immigration country uh, traditionally, and we have a wonderful lifestyle. We have generally a wonderful climate, apart from some of the disasters that happen uh, from time to time. More recently, um, yes. <laughs> more recently, yes. Um, and so uh, people generally move for economic reasons. We have a very strong economy and we have lots of jobs. They're generally the kinds of factors that lead people to want to migrate to Australia. Some want to migrate temporarily and some want to make a better life permanently in Australia. So um, Australia is and always has been pretty much like the US and Canada, uh, an immigration country. And I think it will remain that for the foreseeable future. Can a person just arrive in Australia and apply for a visa or do they have to prepare everything beforehand? Well, in the case of Mr. Djokovic, you see how things could, uh, <laughs> could go wrong very quickly. Yeah, talk everyone through quickly uh, as a recap what happened with Novak Djokovic recently. Quite a fascinating case in, in, in many respects, but um, equally uh, unremarkable because these kinds of things happen all the time and it was good to... As an immigration lawyer, it was good to be on the forefront of, of what was going on. Mr. Djokovic arrived in Australia with a valid visa and his visa was cancelled in immigration clearance being at the airport by a delegate of the minister who basically said, um, no, I think you're a risk to the community uh, because of your vaccination status. He then appealed that. The minister withdrew from that appeal and he got his visa back. And then the minister personally intervened and used his personal powers, which the minister has, to then personally cancel his visa again on slightly different reasons and uh, made a decision that was so watertight that even the federal court sitting with three judges on a Sunday, which is remarkable, (laughs) um, decided no, there was no legal error in this. Doesn't mean that they agreed with the decision, but it was basically no legal error. And Mr. Djokovic had to leave the country because he didn't uh, pursue any further appeals. So remarkable in some respects because it was the number one tennis player, unremarkable because this happens 
on an almost daily basis. You know, for those of you've watched Border Security and that program, um, you will see that people get their visas cancelled in immigration clearance at the airport all the time. A lot of the time, does that happen if they haven't prepared and done all of that paperwork before they've gotten on the flight to come to Australia? Well, you can't really enter Australia without a visa. So we have what's called a universal visa system in which everyone needs a visa to arrive. So usually at the port of embarkation for flights directly to Australia, they will have what's called airline liaison officers who will actually check and the airline is responsible also and is penalised if they don't comply for ensuring that you've got the right visa to come to Australia. So most people, uh, and that I guess goes back to your, your initial question, most people wouldn't even be able to arrive in Australia without a visa. Some do slip uh, through the cracks for, for some reasons and they, they can be issued what's called a border visa in extraordinary circumstances, but generally people would arrive with a visa and then what happens there is that someone says, mm, hang on a sec, I don't think you're a tourist and then that visa would be cancelled or mm, you've got a criminal record that you haven't disclosed before, they cancel that visa. A lot of that happens at the airport, but it can also happen once the person is immigration cleared and they're actually in the country in Australia. How long does the process take if somebody wants to make a new life in Australia? How long could they be looking at that at that pathway to residency? How long would that take on average? It can be very, very quick and it can be very, very long. I have clients who have gotten a visa within permanent residence within four or five days of applying because they've been, say, you know, a, a, a doctor or someone in a very, very highly skilled occupation that's in critical need in Australia. I also have other clients who've been fighting for their permanent residence for 10, 15 years, and that's not an exaggeration. Wow. So it can be a, yeah, so it can be a vastly different process, and that's why it's really important to get it done right from the very beginning. It can be very easy. It can be also very easy to make significant mistakes which have long, uh, long-reaching consequences because the system in some ways is very, very clogged up, and when you start getting into appeals and, and review and things like that, it can take a very, very long time. If somebody wants to move to Australia for a couple of years, but they have a criminal record for a misdemeanor, say, back when they were very young, I want to, I suppose, ask you a little bit about criminal records and no two criminal records being alike and some things being more serious than others. But if someone's got a pretty minor issue on their record and it happened a long time ago, is that going to have an impact on their dream of moving to Australia? Um, a very minor offence a long time ago uh, may not have an impact on a person's character test and every visa is subject to the character test, which you automatically fail if you've been convicted um, of a crime that um, of a sentence of more than 12 months, whether you, you serve it or not. So that's an automatic failure. If it's a minor offence uh, a long time ago, a lot of the time uh, it doesn't cause any problems unless you don't declare it and the department finds out later. The Department of Home Affairs and then the Border Force really don't like when they don't know. So a lot of the cases that we do are people who, if they declared the offence, it would probably have been fine and it would have gone through. But because they didn't declare it and it came out later, then they are accused of fraud. Their visa gets refused because they've provided false and misleading information. Things like that can cause problems. So um, it's not just the offence, but it's what you do with it and how you declare it that can cause problems. So this is Um, like an old, like the cover-up, whether or not that's deliberate or inadvertent, the cover-up being worse than the original crime. Exactly right. And, you know, we see it a lot for visas which don't require police clearances, for example. So you might come into Australia on a working holiday visa, you might get your second working holiday visa. Then when it comes to, you know, actually lodging a permanent visa application or a sponsored visa application, all of a sudden you've got to provide a police clearance and the department says, hang on, you you didn't declare this before on your working holiday visa. That sort of stuff causes problems because the department basically says, well, 
we let you in in good faith. You ticked the box, said no, and now we find out that that was incorrect. So, you know, that sort of situation causes problems. Again, often visa refusals and cancellations um, and the appeals that result out of that. So that really puts a, puts a huge damper on the person's journey uh, to Australia or that person's journey if they're already in Australia to regularise their status and become a permanent resident. Break it down for me. What are the differences between common offences or minor offences? So there are some offences which are sometimes considered to be, you know, road traffic offences or fines and things like that. So a lot of people might get a fine due to some sort of traffic issue. If they go to court, sometimes it's actually recorded as an offence and, and as a conviction. And if they don't declare it, and then it later comes up on their police clearance, that can be a problem. When we consider minor offences, um, you know, it's littering, sort of, you know, public urination type things that don't necessarily put you into such disrepute that you'd fail the character test. But if those things, for example, driving under the influence of alcohol, if they become a pattern, you've got multiple offences, then the Minister for Immigration can cancel you under what's called general conduct. So the Minister can say, I think your general conduct shows a disregard for the law and I'm not going to grant you the visa on that basis. What happens then sometimes is when you do when you do apply for a visa and you've got a criminal conviction, is that processing time can be very, very long because if you do have, say, a string of minor convictions, the case of a might go, I think the character unit needs to have a look at this and it gets sent off to a different processing area which looks at all the people with all the offences. And if you're just asking for a visa to Australia, which normally takes a few weeks to process, all of a sudden that process can take one or two years because you're in the queue in the pile with all the people who have got serious criminal offences as well and that section has to go through all those and determine whether they're a risk to society or not. The main issue we see at the moment is with a large number of character cancellations for people who have been here for 30, 40, 50 years. Oh, wow. So, so you might say, yeah, and that's a significant issue. You, you might have people who arrived here from the UK, for example, or from New Zealand when they were very, very young. They never took out citizenship because they didn't feel that they needed to. They had the free right to, to live here as permanent residents. All of a sudden, they're convicted of an offence, and sometimes they are very serious offences. The minister then cancels their visas and they get uh, sent back to their home countries. Even, even though, though they've lived here, co- yeah, many, many, many years. Exactly, yeah. So um, much to the much to the, the chagrin, the criticism of the current uh, immigration minister who told immigration lawyers off, quite frankly, about you know lodging appeals and things like that for criminals. Everyone does deserve the right to a fair trial, and especially if you've been there for a very, very long time. My personal view is that you are Australia's problem. We've created you and you can't just get rid of that problem to another country. So it's a very controversial area, particularly with New Zealanders. So there's a large cohort of New Zealanders who get sent back and the Prime Minister of New Zealand has made some very, very strong remarks criticising Australia for this particular process. Imagine coming here when you were three, you're Australian for all intents and purposes, all Mm. of a sudden you commit a crime, you do your sentence, you've served your time, you get out and there's immigration officers waiting there for you to deport you back to your, your, your home country, whatever that is. Your home country technically at that point you presume is Australia, not yeah, New Zealand. the only country that you've ever known. Exactly, exactly. I want to talk to you, I suppose, about the best laid plans that we might have for our lives and often if people move to another country on a temporary visa and they might think, I'll stay for a couple of years. So if someone comes to Australia and they think, no, I'm just, I'm just here for a, a one or two year adventure... But then life happens and you find the job of your dreams or you meet the love of your life or you oh, think... So romantic. So, so ro- romantic. I'm a desperate romantic. So that's... <laughs> let's, or you just, in a way, you think, you know what, I'm, I'm just not ready for my adventure to be over yet. What are the next steps that someone can take in a situation like that to become a permanent resident? 
Um, I mean, I'm always going to say get legal advice because I am a lawyer. But, um, <laughs> Good answer. Uh, well, but it's but it's true. You know, uh, there are uh, registered migration agents and and immigration law specialists who, who help plan out the journey because it is important. It's important to get it right. There's a lot of visas that you, people can do themselves without a problem. Visitor visas, working holiday, you know, these kinds of things. Um, you know, if you're from a low risk country, for example, you can do those things yourself. But really mapping out and planning that journey once you're already here. Because you've formed a bond with Australia already, you're, you've been here for a couple of years, you've presumably got work, you've presumably got a partner, you've got life, you've got a community, you've got friends. It's very, very easy to stuff it up. So um, getting good advice and planning that strategy. You might have an employer who wants to sponsor you. Um, do you want to be tied to that employer for a few years on your journey to permanent residence? Or do you want to be tied to your partner for a few years on that journey to permanent residence? <laughs> yeah, so, very serious conversations have to well, happen here. They are, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, people have, are lucky and they have both of those options. And I so, said, well, who would you rather be tied to? A, a partner who, you know, has the ability to pull the pin at any point or uh, an employer who also possibly has the, the ability to pull the pin at any point. So I see a lot of relationships being strained because of the visa process. So sometimes we might say, well, you've got a good job, a good employer. Why can't they sponsor you? Your job is on a list of occupations, which is in demand. There's no reason why you couldn't carve out your pathway to permanent residence that way. Put your eggs um, in the job basket, not the love basket. The love basket is a dangerous basket. Very dangerous tell you. basket. <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, and obviously a lot of young Australians, like we are often a nation of travellers and a lot of people travel overseas and they may have met their partner overseas. Indeed. And so say if someone is from another country and they've met an Australian overseas, Australian comes home and they want to come to Australia and join them. Yes. If... If I am moving for love, what would I have to prove about my relationship? Do I have to prove anything? Uh, yeah, you do. And it's a common misconception that people just think, oh, I'll just get married and all be good. Um, no, it's not. You really have to show everything about your relationship. And there's really this, this wonderful insight into a person's love life and their domestic life, mm-hmm. um, which you really have to share with the department. And one thing I always say to our clients is the department of case officer has no idea who you are. You know you're in the relationship. You know you're genuine but they don't know anything about your finances. They don't know anything about your the nature of the household, who does the washing, who does the, you know, all that sort of stuff. They don't know how other people see you. So it's really about presenting that story to the case officer to say, yes, we're in a genuine relationship. And it's not just boyfriend, girlfriend, or boyfriend, boyfriend, or girlfriend, girlfriend. It's a real relationship. It's a de facto relationship. And getting married just basically removes that the requirement to be together for 12 months and be in a de facto relationship for 12 months. It does not remove the requirement to show that you are in that genuine relationship and have been for significant amounts of time. And it can be really challenging depending on what country you're from because if you're from a low-risk country, in inverted commas, if you're from the UK and you can get an electronic visa to come to Australia, you might be able to lodge an application in Australia after you've come here. From other countries, they won't give you a visitor visa. If you're coming from a high-risk country, for example, where they say, I don't think you're going to go back to your country, I'm not going to give you a tourist visa. If you're from Syria, for example, they might say, sorry, you've got to lodge your application outside the country. Yes, possibly be separated from from your partner during the processing time and you can't just pop to Australia to, to hang out here while that visa is being processed. And some of those processing times can be two years or more. So there's a possible separation of you and your partner depending on you know what country they're from. So planning that is really, really important um, to make sure that you are aware of when to lodge and how to lodge and where to lodge. Oh, interesting. I will, I'll ask you a little bit more a little bit later about the country you come from and, and how that can influence the process. But yeah. just to, I suppose, follow up on the relationship question and when it's you've got to demonstrate to the case officer that your relationship is genuine. 
what sort of things do you have to show? Photos, like text messages? Do I'm like imagining having to put almost like a scrapbook together of like the story of exactly. us. So like exactly. what, what sort of things do I need to, to show that my relationship is completely legit? So it's it's quality, not quantity here because some people are just put in, you know, thousands of photos and nothing <laughs> else of substance. Some of those photos can sometimes be a little um, a little PG plus rated. Oh, um, so keep it. No. Keep, <laughs> oh, really? Absolutely. Do people try to, wow, does that, people try and share less like PG and above photos as proof that it's legit, really? I used to work uh, at the Department of Immigration many, many years ago and in the partner visa section and we used to see some pretty interesting things be submitted, some things which were not necessarily relevant or for the case officer's eyes to see, but... <laughs> It makes for, for very very good reading. Look, at the end of the day, you, you almost want to bore the case officer with how mundane your relationship is. You know, if there's text messages showing, you know, oh, can you get milk? Oh, we've run out of this. Oh, can you pick up blah, blah, blah? Or, you know, the dog needs to go to the vet. All those kinds of things. They generally show a, a genuine relationship. But relationships come in all shapes and sizes. And so what is considered a traditional relationship may not be considered a traditional relationship by other people. So it's really about, showing evidence of all those categories. And the categories are nature of the household, the commitment that you have to each other, that's all that sort of lovey-dovey stuff, mm. financial pooling, how do you share your finances or are you just are you housemates that just, you know, divide everything up in a spreadsheet that looks possibly a bit weird? Otherwise, you know, if you're a genuine couple, you might say, well, we're an integrated financial entity, don't care who spends what. And finally, how do others see you? So it's statutory declarations and things like that from other people. The, the evidence is really, really important because if you make a claim, if you say, we own a dog together, you've got to not just show a f- photo of the dog, you've got to show the dog's registration, you've got to show that, you know, if you take a, the dog to the vet, for example, that it's your name on the contact card, things like that, that link you and your partner to that particular thing that you're trying to claim. And that's where a lot of people fall over and, and struggle because then they say something and they don't have any evidence for it. It used to be different. You used to actually have to go in for an interview with the department and the case officer would interview you and get a feel for whether you're in a genuine relationship or not. That oh, generally wow. doesn't Yeah, that generally doesn't happen anymore unless there's some dobbing or a concern or something like that and the department will come and do a site visit at your house and make sure that the, you know, you've got both toothbrushes in the same glass, that kind of thing. And that does happen sometimes when there are concerns, but generally it's all about the documents. It's all about showing the evidence that you are in fact together. And that can be quite difficult, especially for relationships, which are a little bit unconventional, which aren't you just your, your typical, you know, mum, dad and three kids and, and the, the evidentiary footprint that comes with that. I love that it's like the more mundane, the better. So like the more, like none of this honeymoon period <laughs> saying just constantly nice things about each other. It's the like, I told you to go to the supermarket yesterday and you didn't do it. So All the, all the signs of a genuine relationship. <laughs> like this is a very genuine relationship. <laughs> You mentioned a little earlier about the the sort of low risk versus high risk countries. Mm. So I want to ask you a little bit more about that. So does the country that you come from influence the length of the process of getting a visa? 100%. If a client comes to me and says, oh, I've got mum in the Netherlands who wants to come and visit, um, I'll go, that's fantastic. You don't need my help. Mum just needs to go and apply for an e-visitor visa and that's free. And she'll probably get that in 24 hours and she'll be able to come here whenever she can get a flight. If a person is from a high-risk country, for example, a country that is war-torn or a country that has a high refugee source population, so for example, if you're from an African country like Mali, if you want to visit a visa from that country, well, you're going to need a lawyer and you're going to need a lot of help because you need to show that there is incentive for you to go back to that country. 
because the department's base view is everyone wants to stay in Australia once they're here, which might be true for a lot of people, not necessarily true for everyone, but the visitor visa itself is one of the hardest visas to get if you're not from one of those electronic visa countries. When you're talking about overstaying, I'm reminded of there being a pretty famous example of this happening in the Commonwealth Games. Are you able to tell people what happened then? Well, whenever there's an event in Australia and people come from all kinds of countries, including high-risk countries, they might get different kind of sports visas, etc. And uh, a lot of people, and this is, this is not just the, the Commonwealth Games example, but a lot of people decide, hey, this is pretty nice and I don't really want to go back to my own country. So they kind of, they overstay and they disappear or they would apply for a refugee visa in Australia, what's called a protection visa. They're entitled to do that and that's, um, you know, their case will be assessed on a case-by-case basis, but it is not unusual for people to sort of jump ship when there are larger events. Some people have overstayed for many, many, many years. The record that I've seen in my career, and I've been doing this for a long time, but the record I've seen is 38 years. Oh, wow. So, mm, so a person who's, you know, sounds Australian, looks Australian, has, has uh, all the hallmarks of a fully integrated Australian person and hasn't had a visa for 38 years. So, wow. How um, is it the, revealed after 38 years? Uh, this client was actually at the department because they couldn't take it anymore. They, they, they couldn't deal with the guilt for, for that long. And they were at the department turning themselves in, in fact. Oh, wow. And uh, someone had overheard a conversation and said, you should, you should probably go see a lawyer before you do this. What should and shouldn't I do if I wanted to apply for refugee status in Australia? What shouldn't you do is um, have a terrible claim and be from a country where you can easily relocate to, you know, 15 other countries like the European Union. So if you're from the UK, you probably don't want to be applying for a um, a refugee or a protection visa here because you are one of those people clogging up the system. Do you have a right to? Well, you do actually. And will the case be assessed? Well, yeah, it will be. So that's one of the struggles of the department. And I understand why they would be frustrated with people applying for for nonsense uh, refugee visas. But generally, um, if you are in Australia and want to apply for refugee status because the circumstances have changed in your country, for example, Ukraine is a good is a very good example. You can do that and you can do that in Australia. The prospects of applying for refugee status outside of Australia are very low. Our humanitarian intake is very low and it takes a, a very, very long time for those applications to be, to be assessed. So, and that's one, of the, that's one of the concerns of the government as well, of, of people coming here and applying for refugee status in Australia because they know once you're here, you can apply for that. So, one of the biggest issues at the moment that's facing the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, for example, is a huge backlog of people from Malaysia who've come here on visitor visas, electronic visas, and have tried to convert that and have tried to apply for protection in Australia for refugee status. That's then assessed at you know, both levels of, uh, of the executive, both at the department and at the tribunal, and that takes a long time. And during that time, they're here, and that obviously clogs up the tribunal. Are all of those cases legitimate? Maybe, I don't know. They all need to be assessed individually. So you can see why the department is is reluctant to let people into the country in the first place and why visitor visas really sometimes are the most difficult ones. What are someone's rights as a temporary visa holder? Are they entitled to things like Medicare? Obviously, we've just come out of two years of a pandemic with a lot of support payments through COVID, like job JobKeeper and JobSeeker and the likes. If you're on a temporary visa, are you entitled to any of those sorts of benefits? Um, am I allowed to use the word bugger all? Um, yeah, yeah that, because that's that's basically what, what you're entitled to as a temporary visa holder. And we saw that very much during the pandemic for student visa holders. You know, there were people here who were paying tens and tens of thousand dollars to Australia to study here and then COVID hit and 
there was no support payments for them. There was nothing they could what they could access their superannuation. I think um, why they're paying superannuation in the first place, I don't know, given that they're temporary visa holders. But mm. them also temporary visa holders who were stood down, for example, did not get any benefits. Job keeper, they were not eligible for that. So really, it's a it's a precarious situation for a lot of temporary visa holders both in terms of the status of their visa and the benefits that they have. If you're here on a work visa and you've been sponsored by, I don't know, a mining company as a mechanical engineer, for example, you have to hold your own travel insurance. You know, you have to have your own health insurance for you and your family. And it's it's a quite a high level of cover that the department requires you to hold. So it's quite expensive. You're not entitled to Medicare. You're not entitled to anything, really. And that can become a problem if you've got people on temporary visas for extended periods of time. Generally, for temporary visa holders, it's very, very difficult. It's basically you're on your own. And if things don't work out, well, there's the door, which was very much the government message when COVID hit. That message is very, very different now because we're struggling to fill skills shortages and yeah. the government say, no, stay, stay, please. All those, all those things we like. said. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's a, it's, it's a real 180 and, and it really shows some of the vulnerabilities of, of temporary uh, migrants who... You know, they're so susceptible to economic factors, that push and pull, the economic push and pull. If things are good, please come in. If things are bad, get out. Yeah, it's a real good time. Like when things are going well, like it's all it's all happy days. But when things turn badly, it's like it, it can go south very, very quickly. It's, that's right. Or, or, or north if you're you know, yeah. in Australia, just home. <laughs> yes, exactly. Straight, here's the door. If I'm on a partner visa and I've been here for a number of years, I'm on my partner visa and everything in my life in Australia is going well, accept my relationship and mm. and it breaks up, but I'm on a partner visa, what happens then? Um, it's a really tough one because if it's just a simple breakup, then the department says, well, you're no longer in a relationship and you no longer meet the visa criteria. There are some exceptions by which you can still get the partner visa. And those exceptions are if you've suffered uh, family violence or domestic violence from your partner or you and a dependent member of your family, basically. And that doesn't need to be physical violence and could be sort of psychological violence, it can be economic pressure, um, coercive control, these kinds of things. Um, that's one way that you can still retain your partner visa, but the burden of proof is obviously quite high. Mm. Um, the other way is if your partner dies, so you can still get the partner visa on that basis. Or thirdly, if you've got a, a child of the relationship, then you will be able to get the partner visa despite breaking up. In any other instance, it's pretty much tough luck and you could possibly be, have been in Australia and been with your partner for two, three, sometimes four or five years and you break up and that's the that's the end. So sometimes some of the the, the more vulnerable cases we see and, and particular cases that go on for such a long time is imagine you, you're with a partner, everything's going well, you apply for the visa, visa takes two years to process, they refuse it, didn't provide enough evidence. Okay, you appeal it to the tribunal, that's another two years. Tribunal says, oh, no, you're definitely in a relationship. I can see you, you guys are obviously together. They've interviewed you, do all that sort of stuff. Send it back to the department. By the time that it's sent back to the department, it's been, what, four, maybe five years or so, you break up. That's it. You wow. can't get your visa because it's a time of decision criterion. So by the time the department looks at it again, for that permanent pathway, they go, sorry, you're not in a relationship. There's nothing they can do. So you can really have disastrous effects purely by these long processing times and that sort of clogged up system. So sometimes what we have to do is say, well, let's jump to another visa that's not tied to your partner. Let's jump to a visa that's tied to your employer, for example. But a lot of people then have to start their journey again. They have to do another three years with their employer, for example, before they're eligible for permanent residence. So there's a lot of 
sort of two steps forward, one step back type situations that happen in immigration law. And people people really don't realise how difficult it is for uh, temporary migrants in Australia. For some, it's very easy, but for a lot, it's very, very difficult. And I think, you know, we all need to take a step back sometimes and think how lucky we are that we have the right just to live here and, and be here and have all these wonderful benefits and live in this country that so many people would literally give their left kidney for. Who has the obligation to to report? Like I can imagine if I'm on a partner visa and I get dumped, do I then also like I'm broken hearted and then I also have to go through a, a maze of bureaucracy and call the department yeah. and be like, oh, also like FYI, I just got dumped last night. So what does this mean for my visa? Yeah. Like yeah. who who has the obligation to to sort of present the the change in circumstances? Um, you do while you're writing your um, your letter and tears are dropping onto your um, onto your piece of paper. Um, it, it's sad, but it's true. You you technically have an obligation. Section one hundred and four of the um, of the Migration Act says that until the visa is granted, you've got an obligation to tell the Department of a change of circumstances. So it's um, it's pretty brutal in some respects. A lot of people don't, obviously, for for, for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, and uh, it's either the 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 partner, the sponsor who, who uh, lets the department know. Sometimes there are dobbins from friends or from jealous other people. Wow. Um, yeah, so that happens, that happens quite a Ooh. bit as well. Sometimes it's even rougher because people have a breakup, the sponsor calls and says, I can't be with this person anymore, I'm withdrawing my sponsorship, and then you reconcile, and then the sponsor calls up the department and tries to undo that, and oh. it just doesn't work because the department's like, sorry. So things like that happen all the time. The things I've seen, look, I'd have to write a book about it one day, but it's... You um, should. <laughs> fascinating reading, Australia's immigration laws. Um, yeah, look, it's fascinating. The personal stories that you see, and sometimes you, you sort of wonder how people got themselves into the situation. And it's not just their personal life that they've got to worry about at that point. It's it's the, all the visa stress as well. So imagine, you know, breakups are traumatic enough. Now you've got to think about how do I stay in this country I've got my dog, I've got my whatever it is, I've got my job, I've got my friends. I'm, I love this place. Mm. And all, all of a sudden you've got to think about I might get a refusal and I might have 35 days to leave the country. Wow. So it's some, it's some pretty full-on stuff that goes on in this area. Yeah, no, incredibly stressful. I'll ask you as a, as a final question. I may already know the answer having listened to you for uh, <laughs> talk so passionately over the past sort of 30 minutes or so, but... In, in trying to navigate this maze of entering Australia, when do I need a lawyer to help me? Is um, the answer always? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Not at all. Um, it, it's not always. Um, you need someone competent. It doesn't have to be a lawyer. It can be a registered migration agent um, as long as they're obviously a registered migration agent who has a migration agent number and is competent at, at what they do. When do you need them? You need them not just when things go wrong, but you need them when you're doing something that's a little bit out of the ordinary. As I said before, if you're doing a working holiday visa and you're from the Netherlands, you don't need our help. If you're doing a visitor visa and you're from the US, you don't need our help. Even if, you, you know, if you've been in a relationship um, with your partner and you've got three children and you want to do a partner visa and you're an, you're an educated person who knows how to fill out forms, you probably don't need a lawyer's help unless you want to outsource those worries. But when you're looking at strategy and you're looking at what's my next step and what is my goal here, it's always good to get advice. And I think the advice needs to come from someone who is not just going to be there to take your money after a free consultation and wants to sign you up. It's a person who will tell you very honestly, you don't need me. And and I think that what that's what makes a good professional, whether it be a lawyer or a migration agent. You know, they've paid their money for the consultation and the and the lawyer or the professional says, you can do this yourself. You don't need me. Happy to do it for you if you want me to, but you don't need me for this. 
in other respects, it's really important to get that advice from the beginning because I've seen how it goes wrong, you know, and I've seen how horribly it goes wrong for a tiny mistake. Person doesn't upload or their agent or their lawyer doesn't upload an Australian federal police clearance to the portal before the application is lodged. That's it for that application. You can't rectify that. All of a sudden that person is at the tribunal and in a court and have been there for five years and their future in Australia is ruined. So it's really easy in some respects, but as I said before, it's also really easy to stuff up. So I think when you're looking at strategy, if you're really serious about making Australia your home long-term, go see someone just for a second opinion to go, hey, this is what I want to do. Do you think this is right? The importance of legal representation and good legal representation is really, really important. That's why I encourage everyone to um, you know, go to the law societies, in, in our case, the Law Society of Western Australia, find a lawyer, look at their reviews, look at what they've done, look at how, how active they are um, in the community, look at whether they've given talks at conferences and things like that. That means they care. That means they're into the subject area. We at our firm like to call ourselves immigration law nerds. We are. We, we, we're passionate about finding solutions for little tricky little problems like that. And it's not just about making money. Uh, I know lawyers have a bad reputation, but I tell you the work that lawyers do, especially in immigration law, is absolutely phenomenal. I think that the profession can give itself a pat on the back for the work that we do. Well, Daniel, I know that you've described yourself as an immigration law nerd, but you have provided a wealth of expertise Uh, in a really easy to understand way. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales and thanks also to the Law Society of Western Australia for their support with today's episode. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Takato. Audio production by Mitch Calladine. And executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.